Thank you. Thank you. I like uh, worshipful music. I like happy music, you know, that lifts your spirit and encourages your soul. Um, I like challenging things, you know, like will, will, will uh, Jesus find us watching and waiting when he comes. But I also like calm, peaceful, worshipful music as well. And it calms your soul. Often, when you look at these paintings <clears throat> of the ocean, I've always been attracted to peaceful, calm seas. I don't like them pictures of rough, raging oceans. You know, it just doesn't, it just unsettles me. I really enjoy the, the peaceful calmness of it, and I enjoy music like that. Um, I think we're pretty well caught up to date on news and no updates on me, except I think I'm getting better. I still cough some, but I think every day seems to be just a little bit better going on. So hopefully all that's going to get cleared up over time, and that'll be all right. Okay. Um, I wanted to mention a reminder, too, about uh, our missions fund. Oh, I forgot to bring it in. Shirley sent us a letter of thanks, and it was a very, very nice one, and I meant to, I'll, will post it on the, on the board after the service then, now that I've forgotten it. She sent us uh, a nice handwritten note, and then also two of her previous um, letters, I wouldn't call them exactly prayer letters, but little updates as to what she's been doing and, and her approach to how she works with Jewish people and so on, and Gentiles. So I'll, I'll post that in a little bit, but I wanted you to know about that. And don't, you know, if I forget, somebody, well, don't wring my neck and come up and say, hey, okay. I don't, I don't want that neck wringing thing. Uh, I, I don't want to forget that. But in connection with that, I just wanted to remind us about our giving towards the um, missions fund. Now, I don't say anything about our regular church giving, you know, I can't, it just amazes me that the Lord has kept our giving level up to where it's been in spite of all those who have left us uh, over the past year and a half since I came here and Royce retired. But God's blessed us in a rich way. And so I want to continue that, but I don't think I have to say a word about it because you're the ones doing it. You know, God's blessing you and you're passing it on. So with the missions fund then, we want to continue with that. We made a commitment uh, to Shirley, and Lord willing, you know, if God continues to bless us there, we'll make commitments to others in the future uh, for regular monthly support. Or if we can, as, as funds accumulate, you know, we can do the lump sum giving as well for special needs or projects that might come up for missionaries we may have yet to meet or maybe missionaries you have met in years past. I'm getting several prayer letters on a monthly basis from missionaries that I assume have been here in the past. And, um, and I got one the other day from one who's looking for new support. And uh, so there's, there's no need or, or lack of need for someone to support, that's for sure. Uh, the need is very, very great. So just wanted you to keep those things in mind and be praying about them and, and considering what God would have you to do and supporting the mission work, and surely messenger in particular at this time. All right, I want us to turn to Joshua chapter 22 this morning, 
Joshua chapter 22. <clears throat> We're not going to stay there. We're just starting there. We're really going to head over primarily to Judges chapter 1 in just a moment. But I wanted us to see in, in, in Joshua chapter 22, and of course we have to think about where we are, what's going on in the history of Israel up to this point. And the land has now been subdued or conquered. And the Bible describes that as the land had rest from war. And so it, there was peace in the land. And they were able to pitch their tents, build their cities, occupy these cities, you know, that uh, they didn't build. And walls that they had not put up around these cities and take possession of the land in such a way that they could begin to cultivate the vineyards, plow the fields, plant their crops, and begin living a, a more normal life than the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness that they had just experienced and the seven years of, or so of warfare that had been the lot of Israel until the land had achieved this rest and this peacefulness. Till these Canaanites had been subdued and driven out of the land or destroyed. They weren't really driven out, but they were to be completely and utterly destroyed. And of course, what we're going to find here is that Israel did not do that. They did not fulfill all that God had commanded them to do in cleansing the land. And so they stopped short of the goal to some degree but for what they had done and for the obedience that they had shown, Joshua reminded them that the Lord had not failed them one whit in all that he had promised to do for them. <clears throat> and so now Joshua's getting up in years. He's about 110. He's going to die when he's 110. How old he was here, I don't know, but he must have been awful close, 108 or 109. That's right on up there. And he's about ready to die, and he knows that, so he's preaching, as it were, passing on his final message, his farewell message to Israel. <clears throat> and in chapter 22, he speaks to the two and a half tribes as they are about to pass back over to take possession of the land on the east side of the Jordan. You remember they wanted that land, you know, the people of Israel and Joshua said, no, you can't do that until you come over to our side and help us take possession of the land and subdue the people of Canaan. Once you do that, then you can go back over. Well, they're about to depart and go over. And they had gone over, built them an altar on the other side as a reminder of what they had accomplished in their commitment to the Lord for future generations. And Israel saw that, and they thought, oh boy, here they are. They're over there, and already they're departing from the Lord. But they found out that it wasn't so, and they had their hearts reassured that they were going to stay faithful to God and uh, the commitment they had made to be uh, uh, obedient to his covenant that he had made with them. And then in, ch in chapter 23, <coughs> there... He calls the, all the leaders together, and he has a leadership meeting. We have a leadership meeting at BIMI every month where just leaders and heads of departments, field directors and so on come together, 
and there we discuss issues, things that have to do with, you know, the direction of our mission, missionaries, whatever's going on. Joshua's going to give a departing message now to the leaders of Israel. And then finally, in chapter 24, he speaks to the people as a whole. And, of course, he's, in all of this, he's, he's uh, reminding them or calling upon them, pleading with them, urging them to remain faithful, to not discount the faithfulness of the Lord, to realize that they can fully trust in him, that if they will continue to fight the inhabitants of the land, that God's going to give them victory. And God will allow them to subdue the land in its entirety. Well, as we come over to Judges chapter 1, it tells us there, now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? So it sounds good. It sounds as if they're on the right path. They're go- you know, Joshua dies, they're going to continue on with what they were supposed to be doing, even though the land had been basically settled, peace was at, at hand, they, were, they didn't have live in fear of their enemies, but they had to finish the job. They had to remove, they were to remove every last vestige of uh, the Canaanite uh, culture from the land and destroy it, utterly destroy it is the, is the biblical term that's used. But sadly, the story just doesn't end on a high note. And they didn't do so. So as you continue reading in chapter 1, it says in verse 2, The Lord said to Judah shall go up, Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. And so Judah said unto Simeon and his brother, Come up with me into my lot, that is to my portion of the inheritance, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you, or thee, into thy lot, into your inheritance. And so Simeon went with him. And Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they slew of them in Bezek ten thousand men. And they, now, and they, of course, if you subdue, you don't have to kill the women and children in order to bring peace. See, if you just subdue the men of war, if you do away with them, you've accomplished a great goal there. Now, we found through earlier instances in the book of Joshua, particularly with even even in the Lord's own people, in the issue with Achan, when he took an idol of the Canaanites and hid it in his tent, we know what happened to him. We know what happened to all of his family. God took them all, destroyed them all. And they were to take and rid the land of every vestige of the memory of the Canaanites. But here we find they didn't do that. They just killed 10,000 men. But not only that, something worse happens because it says in, beginning in verse 5, it says, And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek, and they fought against him. And they slew the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued after him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his great toes. 
Well, if you cut a guy off a guy's toes and you cut off his thumb, you know, it's pretty difficult to hold a bow and arrow or throw a javelin or something. You don't have a thumb. And so that was a pagan way of taking victory over their enemy. And already at this point, we find Israel had adopted the pagan method of subduing their enemies rather than just killing them all as God had told them to do and utterly destroy the people. Well, if you continue on through this chapter, you'll find other instances where the children of Israel went up against various enemies and and fought against them. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Wow. If you'll look at verse 19 of chapter 1, you'll find another instance where the Lord was with Judah and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. Now, turn with me back to this. this the chronology of this portion here is a little difficult, for me at least. I, I, it's a little bit hard to follow. One of the reasons is because we saw in chapter 1, verse 1, Joshua died. But look in chapter 2 and verse 9. Now, yeah, well, verse uh, verse 8, actually. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. Well, I thought he died back in chapter 1, verse 1. But if you turn back to Joshua chapter 24, I said Joshua, Judges. If you turn back to Joshua chapter 24, you find Joshua died back there. Which one was it? Where did he die at? Well, what you find is, is you know, the writer here mentions the death of Joshua, then he'll back up and pick up some historical data, and he'll begin filling in some details of some things here. And basically in chapter 1, that seems to be what he's doing. He tells us that Joshua died... But it says, look, if you're going to understand what's going, what I'm writing about here in the book of Judges, we're going to have to back up, just like I often do. I say, okay, let's read this verse, but wait a minute. We've got to back up and see what's going on here. What's the context in which this verse was written? Why did he say this particular thing at this point in time? So we back up. We find out what's been happening to lead up to that. And that's what the writer of the book of Judges appears to be doing here. And it seems to me that he is doing. So when you come down to verse 19, he tells us there, they couldn't drive out the inhabitants because they had chariots of iron. And if we turn back to Joshua now, I'm going to do the same thing. Joshua chapter 17. And verse 16, and it says there, The children of Joseph said, The hill is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites that dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron, both they who are of Bethshean and her towns, and they who are of the valley of Jezreel. And Joshua spake unto the house of Joseph, even to Ephraim and to Manasseh, saying, Thou art a great people, and hast great power. Thou shalt not have one lot or one inheritance only, 
but the mountain shall be thine, for it is wood, and thou shalt cut it down. And the outgoings of it shall be thine, for thou shalt drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots, and though they be strong. In other words, Joshua's telling them, well, if that be the, you know, they took the, in other words, the Canaanites took the rich valley of Jezreel. That was where you could grow all the crops. And God's people settled for the mountains. And Joshua, in essence, is telling them, well, if that's the case, go ahead and just cut the wood down then and live there. But he says, if you'll take them on, if you'll fight against them, then you'll subdue them. God promised you would. But because of the fear of those those chariots that had those, you know, those, you ever, you ever seen on TV, those chariots, and those blades sticking out from the wheels, and then they have little metal pieces churning around like this? Can you imagine? Now, now there weren't a great deal of horses. You know, horses were, you know, you would read several, oh, oftentimes you read here in Scripture when, when uh, either a, a pagan nation, a Gentile nation, or... Um, the Israelites, whenever they would put together an army, it oftentimes would tell you how many horses they had. They didn't comprise the whole army. Not everybody rode on horses. Most of them were footmen. So can you imagine these, well, and this, well, all these chariots, how many ever there might be, charging in right into this crowd of men marching, on foot, and just hoping to tear them up with the blades off of that chariot. That's what they would do. So they were in fear of them. They didn't want to take them on. But yet God said, if you will, you'll, you'll, you'll win. You'll defeat them. You'll occupy the land. And Joshua was trying to encourage them, be strong and do this thing. Now the interesting thing is, look, look ahead with me then to Judges. Chapter 4. <clears throat> In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, who dwelt in Herosheth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron. And 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. They were afraid. Why? Just because of these chariots. Now then, the humiliating story for the rest of Israel and the men of Israel is that in verse 5, or 4 rather, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. She was a leader. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kadesh, Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, Tabor and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali, 
and of the children of Zebulun. And I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon Sisera, the captain of Jebin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. Didn't matter if they had chariots of iron or not. God's promise was that if you would, in obedience, go up and fight, you'll take, you'll take them. You know, they're yours. They're going to fall into your hand. Now look over at verse 23. It says, So God subdued on that day Jabin, the, the king of Canaan, before the children of Israel, and the hand of the children of Israel prospered and prevailed against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. That was what they were supposed to do. But it took, a, in this instance, it took a woman to do it. The men were afraid. But the point was, they had lived in fear of those chariots up to this point. Now, back to chapter 1, if you continue, you know, the, the, the political scene that this writer is setting for us here, then, in chapter 1, Notice in verse uh, 21, back to Judges chapter 1 and verse 21, it says, And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem. And if you look down then at verse 27, it says, Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean. Verse 28 says, uh, When Israel was strong, it came to pass when Israel was strong, that they put the Canaanites to tribute, but did not utterly drive them out. Verse 29 says, Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31, Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko. And then verse uh, 32, but the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. So in other words, they simply chose to tolerate the paganism that was within their midst, in their inheritance, in the land that God had promised them. And they were to go in and cleanse it <coughs> and fully take possession of it, and yet failed to do so. In other words, they were satisfied. When peace came, when they had subdued the enemy just enough that they could farm their land, tend to their vineyards, raise their families, and that they quit because they felt safe and secure in the land. And they gave up. Um, you know, I think this is probably, <laughs> you know, the end result of all this, I'm trying to put the big picture on this thing this morning. But the end result was God calls this unbelief, and he calls it disobedience. He calls it unfaithfulness. He says the children of Israel acted unfaithfully because they didn't obey. They didn't fulfill all that they 
had promised God that they would do. Because you remember when they established the covenant at Mount Sinai, all the way back there, they said, all that the Lord hath said, we will do. And even as the covenant was renewed and, and later on, even with Joshua, he says, hey, you may want to serve with these pagans here, but as for me and my house, he will, we will serve. Look at that, back in, in chapter 24. Look in verse 14, Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. <coughs> He's pleading with them, urging them. He says, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now watch how the people answered. What was their response? And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God, he it is that brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and which did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way wherein we went and among all the people through whom we passed. I mean, oh boy, they understood. They recognized, they're simply saying, hey, we, we recognize that it was brought us out of the land of Egypt. Jehovah God is the one that preserved his people all those 400 years in the land of Egypt, brought them out, took us through that wilderness experience, brought us up here to the land of Canaan, allowed us to come in and fight this, these battles and win these wars and subdue the land and take possession of it. Forsake the Lord now? <laughs> no way. You know, we're with the Lord on this one. We're with you, Joshua. But turn over to Judges chapter 2, and all of a sudden, it didn't take long. In chapter 1, verse 1, we saw where it says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, died. I suppose you guess you've heard the joke. What was Joshua's parents' names? He didn't have any. Joshua, the son of Nun. <laughs> then Joshua chapter 2. Verse 9, or uh, excuse me, very, well, 8 and 9. <coughs> Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old, and they buried him in the border of his inheritance, and so on. And all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation. Another generation came up after them. All of that, just like with the generation that passed through the wilderness, there was a new generation that came in to take possession of the land of Israel, or the land of Canaan, I should say, then became the land of Israel. And then, after Joshua and that generation died off, it says there arose another generation. In verse 11, it says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods, 
of the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Hot against Israel because in failing to drive out the people of the land, in giving in, and I guess today we would call that compromise, we would fail to forsake the world, fail to set ourselves apart from worldly things. You know, we're prone to do that. We say things like, we're in the world, but we're not of this world. We have very clear instructions about separating ourselves from the things of the world. And yet Israel didn't do that. And God was hot with anger. I only, the only way I know to say that is, you know, when somebody gets hot around the collar, blood vessels start to come out a little bit, turns red. I mean, he was angry. Angry with his people because they failed to follow him and, and his voice as they said they would. So when we make a commitment to the Lord, when we determine to be his disciple and to follow him, you know, it's a serious thing. And we always have to be on our toes and looking about around us. What's going on in our lives? Discerning the time. Watching out for what's going on so that we don't allow such things to be a part of our lives. Now, you might remember, I, um, I didn't look that up, but I believe it's in 1 Corinthians 12 where this list of spiritual gifts is mentioned, and one of them is discernment. And you know that God gives people in the body of Christ discernment over such things? They can discern between the spirit of this world and the Spirit of Christ. And when they speak up, it behooves us to listen to what they're saying. But we tend to walk around thinking, you know, we've got a handle on it. We know what we're doing. And if I allow this thing to go on in my life, trust me, my friend, i got control of it. I can handle it. It may not be exactly the way it ought to be for a Christian, but, you know, I've got it. I can do it. And when people with discernment speak to you, or me, you know, I need to pay attention. I ought to listen to what they're saying. And I thank God for them because I'm just telling you right now, when I read some of the things or hear some of the things that they have to say, and I see, that, you know, as soon as they say it, you know, you can see it, you understand it, and you think to yourself, why didn't I see that? Why didn't I think of that? Why couldn't I see it the same way? may not have that same gift. But on the other hand, we're not all blind either. God has opened our eyes to his word and enabled us to see such things. Maybe not to the depth of one who has that gift. But my whole point is, is that God has given us the provision, made it available to us to walk in obedience as he's called us to do. I mean, we need to be wise concerning those things so that we don't be as the children of Israel were. 
you know, we know the judgment seat of Christ is coming. That's the next agenda for us, the rapture and the judgment seat of Christ. And there we will be called to account for how we have lived our life. What was your life characterized by? <coughs> if somebody were to, uh, if somebody were to describe for me your life as best they know it, how would they characterize it? What would they say about you as to the kind of person you were? I'm not talking about you know saying he was a good old boy. I'm talking about what kind of person were you? Because those are the kinds of things that will be exposed or revealed at Christ's judgment seat. What did we really do? What goes on? You know, that's really, if you go back, turn back again to Joshua chapter 24. You know, it's interesting to me, if you go back to chapter 24, verse 14, he says there, serve him in sincerity and in truth. And if you go over to verse 23... He says, now therefore, put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you, and do what? Incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel. And I think I mentioned to you earlier, that word incline, it means to bend or to stretch your heart out towards the Lord God of Israel. The implication or the idea behind that is embrace him, but forsake these gods of the land of Canaan. Well, boy. Back to Joshua chapter 5 with me for a minute. In Joshua chapter 5, the people had just the, the River Jordan. They had not entered into any battle yet. And they had made their way up to a place called Gilgal. And one of the things which God had commanded them to do was to circumcise this new generation. Because all during the wilderness, while they were under God's judgment, uh, they did not do so. So now they were to all be circumcised. Then they all kind of hung out there for several days while they healed up. And it tells us there in verse 9, And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day, that is this day in which all of Israel has come to be circumcised, have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt off you. Wherefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. This place where this mass circumcision of the people of Israel took place. Gilgal means rolling. And that's why they named it rolling. It was because that was where God rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Now, the reproach had to do, apparently here, with the fact that Israel had made this bold claim before Pharaoh that God was going to bring us out 
and bring us into this land. And then they failed to do so. And apparently this brought some mocking and some criticism, this reproach brought upon the people. Matter of fact, do me, let's just do something. Look back at Jeremiah <coughs> chapter 24 for a good example of, of you know, the use of this word, reproach. Jeremiah chapter 24, I think it's 24, wasn't it? Hmm. Yes, Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 9. He says there, I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places whither I shall drive them. So you get the idea this reproach had to do with a cursing and a taunting by Egypt because of their failure. But now Jehovah God says, I've rolled it all away. I've rolled that curse, that reproach, that taunting off of you. And so then... Once that happened, verse 12, the manna seized, verse 13. It came, I'm back to Joshua, I'm sorry, chapter 5 now. Joshua chapter 5, the manna seized at this point. And before they entered into battle, all of a sudden, there appears a man. And look at verse 13, chapter 5, verse 13 of Joshua. It came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man <coughs> over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him, and he said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship him and said unto him, What saith my Lord? Unto his servant. What saith my master unto his servant? That's what that word Lord there means. It means master. It's the same word that, um, it's the same word that, oh, what was his name? Was it uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? I think it was Isaac then. True. Better turn and look. Let's see. I think I wrote that down. Where's that at? That's in Genesis. I mean, I know it's way back there about. Where, where, where did uh, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? See, now I'm lost. I shouldn't be doing this kind of stuff. Uh, Abraham. Where's the, I'm looking for that passage where, you know, Isaac is, um, Abraham, Isaac, I think it's Isaac is passing on his, uh, his promise to his son, Jacob, and, and his, says his servant put his hand under the thigh of his master. It says the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master, his Lord. That's the point I'm trying to make here, how this word is used. Master, Lord. It's translated both ways. And if you look back at Joshua chapter 5, when he calls him or says unto him, What saith my Lord, my master, 
unto his servant, me, Joshua. What do you say? And it was interesting to me in the first part of that verse where it says, nay, you know, how do you come? For us or against us? He said, ah, I come as captain of the host of the Lord. I am now come. You look at that as more of a literal sense. I, I, in my Bible, I just wrote a period after the word Lord. Um, if you'll read a literal translation of that, that's the way it, it appears. Um, he says, nay, I come as captain of the host of the Lord. He says, or, or as, no, he says, as captain of the host of the Lord. Then he says, I am now come. Now, if we understand the, this theophany here, this appearance of God in the midst of his people, we understand him to be Jehovah himself, or ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ, who is commander of the armies of Israel. And he is to be their leader and to lead them in their conquest all throughout the conquering of the land of Canaan. <clears throat> now, if you'll just forget about the fact that there's a chapter 6 there and just continue reading. He says in verse 15 of 5, he says, The captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord, Jehovah, said unto Joshua. In other words, this angel of the Lord is now identified as Jehovah. And he said to Joshua, See, I have given unto thee, or thine hand, Jericho, and the king thereof, and so on, and the mighty men of valor. And so I just wanted us to see that this angel of the Lord is clearly identified there and speaking to Joshua as being Jehovah. Now, if you go back over to Judges now, chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, we find another one of these <coughs> theophanies. <coughs> this another appearance of Jehovah before his people Israel. In verse 1 it says, And an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bakim and said, I made you to go up and out of Egypt and have brought you into the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant <coughs> with you. Now notice this angel of the Lord, If again, if you're going to identify who he is, notice that he says, I made you go up out of Egypt. I swear unto your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant. Well, all you have to do is go back historically to identify who the covenant was made with, and you'll find that Jehovah is the one who had made this covenant with Abraham, repeated it to Isaac, repeated it to Jacob. This is Jehovah appearing to Israel. And he's reminding them of the covenant that he had made and the promise that he would never break this covenant and, of course, implied in that, urging them not to forsake him, but to remain faithful. And yet we find they didn't do it. 
See, because they did not, now think about this all through, it's really hard for me to do this, to paint, look at the bigger picture here, but don't forget now, at this point, you're right at the point where Joshua's dying. That happens over there in verses 8 and 9. So there is no more visible fleshly leader for Israel. Nobody they could actually see. And yet God calls upon them to act in obedience and to honor him and to look to him as king, as Lord of, as Lord of all Israel. Look at this. But they failed to do so. And, and the other significant thing here, given the political situation in Israel, he says in verse uh, 2, or excuse me, chapter 2, rather, verse 1, he says he came up from Gilgal to Bakim. He came up from the place of rolling, the rolling away of the reproach of Egypt, to Bakim, which means weeping, or the weepers. <coughs> you see, Israel was going down. They were not being victorious. And the angel of the Lord, Jehovah himself, made this a very significant event in Israel. Because as he was saying, over here in Gilgal, from the place where I rolled away the reproach of Egypt, that was the place of victory. That was the place where you committed and covenanted with me to obey my covenant, to look to my promises for deliverance. You were going to fight these battles, and you did. And I gave you victory. They said, now, now we're at the place of weeping. In verse 2, he says, you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land, and you shall throw down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? And that's a tough question. Every time we've done something wrong and somebody says, why'd you do that? That's pretty hard to answer, isn't it? I mean, why did you say that? Sometimes you can't come up with an answer. Why did I do that? But God asked them the question, why did you do this? Verse 3, he reminds them. He says, wherefore I said, I will drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides. And their God shall be a snare unto you. I told you I'd drive them out, but now they're going to be a thorn in your side, a snare. They're going to be nothing but a problem to you. You know, that's the way it, it is with us. The spiritual pattern is no different. We do not get rid of that which is going to ruin us, then it'll do. <laughs> that's exactly what will happen. It will prove to be our ruin. It will take us on a downhill slide you know, that you can't get out of. He says there, um, let's see, where was that? Um, oh, well, again, just looking back at chapter 1 and rehearsing that, you'll see there the whole point was they only partially obeyed the Lord. You know, it was in and out, back and forth. And you go through the whole book of Judges. You remember that cycle through the book of Judges? 
it was sin and disobedience. They called upon the Lord. God raised up a deliverer, and they obeyed. And then they forsook the Lord. And then they cried to the Lord. Then God sent them a, a judge. And then they obeyed the Lord, and he gave them victory. And they just went round and round this cycle all the way through the book of Judges. And when you look through the book of Judges, that's what you see, partial obedience. But partial obedience doesn't bring blessing. Partial obedience doesn't lead to faithfulness. As a matter of fact, one of the principles you see throughout the book of Judges is when you fail in complete obedience or faith, then you're going to fail in your ability to resist the enemy, to fight the enemy. If we want all the power and resources that God has promised to give us, and he has, to walk through this life as a Christian, then it requires full obedience. Now, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and using the illustration of Israel in the wilderness, you know, he gives great warning to us as to what would happen to us. If you look, turn over there, you got to see this now, I think. You know, how many memorized 1 Corinthians 10, 13 at some point in your life where it's been a standout verse to you? You know, I remember that verse from way, way back as a Christian. It was one of the first verses anybody ever gave me, <coughs> you know, in discipleship. And you often use this verse in discipling people to assure them that God's not going to put anything in their way to prevent them from living a successful, obedient Christian life. Well, the, my point here is look at where it's connected. In connection with the possibilities in chapter 9 of Paul of being disqualified from the prize, he now gives us Israel in the wilderness as an example of those who failed, who didn't get the prize. They were not allowed to enter into the promised land. And so now he's encouraging these Corinthian believers on in their faith to walk faithfully, obediently. But when, when it comes to chapter thir- or, excuse me, verse 13, he says there's no temptation as took down the Israelites in the wilderness. He says no temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. What, what's so important about that? Because that promise of God's faithfulness points all the way back to what Paul said about that bucket in Acts chapter 7. Having completed the race, I myself should be disqualified. In other words, all, just like for Israel, all the resources you need to finish the race, God has made provision. Has he made a place for you for the same kind of power that God used in defeating the enemies of Israel in the land of Canaan? Has he made power like that available to you and I? Well, that's what verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 10 is telling us. 
No temptation has taken you. God will make a way of escape, enable you to overcome it, and live victoriously. Now, one, I hope, I hope, one last thing, Revelation chapter 3. Jerry hit on Revelation for us this morning in the same same place. He was in chapter 2. <coughs> I want us to turn over to chapter 3. church at Laodicea so aptly depicts where we are today. Verse 14, and unto the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. Sounds like Judges chapter 1. Sounds like the whole book of Judges when you read the entire thing. See, they were neither cold nor hot. They subdued just enough of the land to feel good about it, to feel safe. And he says, you're not either cold nor hot, but he says, I wish you were one or the other, cold or hot. And he says, "I will because you are neither one, though, because you are lukewarm, because you are partial or partly obedient, because after all, they were lukewarm, you know. They weren't cold, but they weren't hot either. They were just middle-of-the-road Christians. And because you are, he says, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Spew you out. And that's a reminder to us that it takes wholehearted Full devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't be part way. And in view of that, verse 17, he says, Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee. You say, but I counsel you. <coughs> So we have to be careful of this, this spirit, this idea that, well, I can allow certain things into my life because I can handle it. You know, I'm a mature Christian. I've got to, I've got to handle on the truth. I know what's God's kingdom. But it can also destroy you. And it can ruin it. I live in fear of that. I want to tell you something. I live in fear of that constantly. And I'm I'm always calling myself into check on things like everything I do, everything I say. I, I go back and I why did I say that? Why did I do that? You know, uh, I don't know if the Lord sometimes was displeased. Maybe it was okay. But Paul tells us we have to walk circumspectly. I mean, walk around knowing what's going on. Figure out spiritually where you are and know spiritually what's going on around you so that you can walk in this world and not remain a part of it. I want to join that happy crowd in Hebrews chapter 11 where it says, These all died in faith. All of them. All of those. I want to tell you something. You go back and read all, about all those characters. Well, there's liars in there, there's murderers in there, 
There's all kinds of people in there that did all kinds of bad things. And in the end, you know, in the end, they all died in faith. They all stood by the Lord. Made their mistakes along the way. Always came back to the Lord. You and I can do the same. And that's what I want to leave you with today. That's what I want to talk about. Is that warn you, but assure you. Just like God does constantly over and over in his word. You know, if you go to Hebrews chapter 3, he does the same thing. Remember how in chapter 3 and chapter 4, he talks about warning, warning, warning. But you come down to the end of chapter 4, and there he gives us encouragement. He says, run at the cry for help to God's throne of grace. You'll find help in your time of need. In the context of those, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and Hebrews 4, uh, I think it's 15, 16, 17, the context of both of those words or promises of encouragement regarding being able to live a life that is pleasing and acceptable before the Lord is that you might not or you might avoid the unbelief of Israel in the wilderness so that you don't miss out on your reward, so that you don't miss out on the possession of your inheritance. And that's where I want to be. And I know that's where I want all of you to be. And I know you want to be there too. <laughs> There's nothing that would be greater, you know, at this point to say, hey, wouldn't it be great in the kingdom of God if we could all meet together again and have fellowship and just rejoice that we stayed faithful? Say, thank God we heard the word of truth and we stuck with it all the way to the end. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the promises you've given us in your word. And we just are grateful, Lord, that you've given us examples in Scripture, and we thank you for them that encourage our hearts and, and give us the hope that we can make it through this Christian life, that we can actually do the things you've called us to do and be obedient in the way you've called us to be obedient. Lord, help us also to see that that this promise of power, the ability to overcome sin, to be victorious, is a resource that you've promised us, and it's available to us when we act obediently. Father, I pray that during this invitation, you'll speak to our hearts, that you'll either convict or assure. Lord, that we might walk out from these halls, from this building, with the confidence and assurance that you walk with us every part of our life. In Jesus' name I pray.